Welcome to Women Who Protect, a series within the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast. In a profession largely dominated by men, we spotlight women working in a wide range of positions within security, protection, and law enforcement. We'll hear their stories, discuss their accomplishments, and get their advice for women and girls who may be interested in a career in protection or security. I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo with Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. After nearly three decades of experience working in security and protection, first at the U.S. Secret Service, and then in the private sector, providing security guidance to corporations, educational institutions, and high-profile individuals, I know firsthand the immense value that women bring to this field, and I know the challenges that we face. I look forward to sharing the stories of women who protect and hope they inspire other women and girls to join our ranks. Now, on to the podcast. Katie Hall is a retired law enforcement officer with 21 years of experience, first working patrol, then as a detective and in digital forensics. She specialized in investigations into child exploitation, and she served on the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. Katie's conducted numerous presentations on the topics of recognizing, reporting, and preventing child sexual abuse, keeping kids safe online child forensic interviewing, and how to interview suspects with developmental delays. She also has private sector experience in executive protection and overseeing background investigations, intelligence investigations, and risk and crisis management. In her free time, Katie enjoys volunteering, hiking with her two dogs, finding fishing holes, tinkering with old trucks, and eating her way through new places. Katie, welcome to Women Who Protect. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning because I just learned something about you a few minutes ago uh, about how you even got into the field of law enforcement before getting into to private security. And I want to go back to that. What were you, were you planning to get into law enforcement all along? What, what, what did you major in? What was your, the very start of your career here? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I went to college and I ended up with a degree in recreation management and wildlife biology, uh, completely unrelated to this field. And when I first started college, I thought maybe I'd be a game warden. And there's some law enforcement component to that. And I remember going to meet with my advisor uh, early on. Yeah, I was a freshman in college. And I was telling you that I think I had too much hairspray and too much makeup the day that I went to go meet (laughs) with my advisor. Because when I went in and said, I'd like to be a game warden, he laughed me out of the room. And there's so few positions for game wardens that I, I think he was like, you need a backup plan. I was like, I don't need a backup plan. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it well. And, it, you know, I think he just took one look at me and wasn't sure I could do it. And so <laughs> I I put, I put that dream on the back burner. And, you know, I've always had a so- strong sense of justice. And um, I went about my career. I, you know, I worked for the Forest Service. I worked for BLM. I worked for um, our state fishing game. And 
you know, I always ended up gravitating towards law enforcement. So the Gaborns would ask me to come help with whatever project they had going. And it just kept circling back to law enforcement. And it wasn't something that I wanted to do. And I always tell everybody, if you can't beat them, join them. And so (laughs) it wasn't, when I was a kid, I wasn't interested in being a police officer. Uh, You know, there was times where I was getting in trouble, but luckily um, you know, I never did anything so bad that it prevented me from being in law enforcement, but I'd never had a positive interaction with law enforcement. And so anyway, when I graduated college, I needed a job and I was thinking I was going into firefighting, which law enforcement put where put me where I'm at today. And uh, firefighting looked more interesting to me at the time. But uh the firefighters had a booth with the police officers. And so I ended up grabbing a packet from both of them. And I looked at the police packet and I was like, this is something I could do. And it keeps me in the town where I want to be. And so I went out and tested. And back then you had to uh, run a mile and a half and touch your toes and do some sit-ups and push-ups. And uh, I passed all those tests and all of a sudden I was a police officer. And um yeah, it was not what I expected. And one of the things, so that that conversation with the advisor, the game warden situation, um, had always stuck in my mind. And so after I was a police officer for five years, uh, invested in the system, I decided that I was going to apply to be a game warden just to see if it was something mm-hmm, that sure. I could do. And I did. And I made it through the process to the point where you know, I was having to consider whether or not this is actually a job that I take. And I just wanted to know that I could do it. And I and I did. And I could do it. And ended up deciding to stay where I was at. Uh, and at that time, I'd already done five years in patrol. I was moving into detectives. And mm. I turned down the position as a game warden. But it was just important for me to know that I could do it, even though you know, so many years ago that that guy took one look at that girl who was, you know, in a sorority and probably wearing a lot of pink and high heels <laughs> and was certain <laughs> certain I wouldn't be able to do the job. And, uh, you know, ironically enough, I actually saw this man years and years later and went out to lunch with him because he and my dad had been friends. And this I, is I had your no advisor idea. My, who had said, find a, find a backup plan. Yep. Yep. And I never, so I had a really pleasant lunch with him. He's a really nice man. And I think he was just being very pragmatic. And I took it so personally Mm. at the time, but, um, you know, he was actually a delight to have lunch with. And I never did. I I didn't tell him the story. Um, I felt like maybe (laughs) he didn't need to hear that. Um, But I did tell him about my successful career in law enforcement. And if anything, I wanted to shift his mindset from maybe women, because at the time there was in the state that I lived, there was 60 gay mordens and only one was female. Oh, wow. And so it was important for me to tell him that I was in law enforcement. And although the department that I spent 21 years at was only, I mean, we were at about 15% law enforcement, 15% Mm -hmm. women in law enforcement, which is high for the national average. Um, But I wanted to shift his mindset to let him know that there was somebody who looked like me who could be in law enforcement had done a successful career. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah. I, I love how you're describing it too, because you definitely got a reaction in, in part based on your appearance and, and you had, you know, the sorority girl and pink and the heels and, and, and all that. And, and I think a lot of people, including 
women and, and young women and girls think, well, to be in law enforcement, you have to look a certain way. You can't wear makeup and your hair always has to be back and you have to have sensible shoes. And and maybe you have to do that if you're on patrol or working in executive you know, protection detail in, in a private capacity. But um, certainly in your off hours, you can wear as much pink and heels and makeup as, as you want. And <laughs> yes. And I Absolutely. Love the, I love the fact that you went back to your advisor to kind of let him know like, hey, like I made it successfully. And I especially love that you decided you still wanted to apply to see if you could be accepted as a game warden. And then you decided to stay where you were because you were starting to like the work or you did like the work. Yeah. I'd, tell me a bit about the, um, what you then got to to do within your law enforcement career because you had a full career as a law enforcement officer doing a lot of interesting and I would imagine difficult work. So so tell us a bit about the the types of cases and investigations and work you got to do within law enforcement. Well, I did, like I said, about five years in patrol and then applied for detectives. And, you know, a lot of people that I talk to uh, go into law enforcement and say, but I don't want to do patrol. I want to be a detective. And I think that that uh, patrol experience was so incredibly helpful um, and helped inform my investigations uh, as a detective. And if you don't know, you know, when you get this uh, investigation, you, you're assigned a new case uh, and you wonder why maybe the officer left some stuff out or this seems like kind of an incomplete start to a case. And then you realize because you know that that person, you know, they were running from call to call that night. Maybe they were, you know, this was at three in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so they're writing their support at 6 a.m. and they're low resourced. And so I thought it was very important to have that patrol experience um, before going into detectives. And I also, so I'm kind of a closet motorhead um, in high school. <laughs> I, I took all the auto tech. I know, again, like showing up probably in a lot of pink and real girly. And I've always had long, fluffy hair. And I, so I went into auto tech um, and I took all the auto tech courses I could in high school. And I worked at an auto parts store delivering auto parts. And then actually for a time after college, um, as I was establishing my career in law enforcement, um, worked as a service writer at a car dealership. Um, oh and I still to this day have uh, old trucks that I fix up. So I'm currently working for any of you motorheads out there. I'm currently working on a 67, <laughs> 67 uh, K20. So a three quarter ton four wheel drive truck. Um, and it's, yeah, it's part of it. how I decompress outside of this job. Um, so having worked uh in auto parts stores and, um, you know, working as a service writer and having uh, so many, um, so much interest in vehicles, I ended up working a lot of stolen car cases. And that became kind of my interest. And actually, after they started assigning me a new type of cases, that was when my sergeant saw that I'd had too much of the person's crimes, he would actually say, hey, Katie, here's a good stolen car case. I'm like, yes. Oh. Like, what do we have here? And, you know, it'd be a stolen car ring. And it was my way to, again, decompress. Um, but after working those stolen car cases for a while, um, we had uh, somebody be promoted into another position. And the cases that they had been working as a detective were the child sex abuse cases. And nobody wanted those. And so I'm certain mm -hmm. that where behind closed doors, there was a rock, paper, scissors, 
and, uh, you know, trying to wrote somebody who's Rochambeauing for who was going to give me the cases and, or, you know, give what detective cases. And I ended up getting all the child sex abuse cases. And I joke that I didn't even like kids. Mm. And uh, <laughs> so it, which actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise. I actually do adore children. Uh, but at the time I was young, I didn't have any kids and I was being assigned to these really horrific cases that nobody else wanted to touch. And so I learned real quickly in my career that the answer is always yes. And so when your sergeant says, would you like to take these cases? You just say yes. And so these child sex abuse cases um, kind of eat at your soul after a yeah. while. Yeah. However, yeah. <laughs> and any person who's worked these cases that's listening to this right now is going to know absolutely what I'm talking about. Um, but it was actually a really good fit for me. And, um, what, you know, one of the questions that I would frequently get is how do you not get burned out from investigating, you know, one of the absolute worst crimes on this planet? And I saw it as little victory. So every time I got a case, it meant that some child felt strong enough to tell an adult about what happened and to trust that an adult who violated them is also good. There's other good adults out there and they can tell an adult about what happened and they trust that that adult's going to do the right thing. And so it was, you know, it was kind of um, a shift in mindset. Um, and so being able to take these cases meant that I had the trust of a child. And mm. um, and so I worked those cases for 15 years and the last four of those 15 years was specific to uh, ICAC, Internet Crimes Against Children, oh, and investigating yeah. um, child sexual abuse material. And in the meantime, you know, there was the opportunities for promotion. I took the sergeant's test, but uh, I really felt like my calling was was these types of cases. And, um, it, you know, what it ended up doing instead of promoting is I ended up taking on smaller challenges, um, even if it was doing something like maybe rewriting a policy around something or rewriting a consent form. And uh, maybe it was taking a training that nobody else wanted to take. And, you know, these types of things, although they seemed like the reason why I was doing them at the time is because nobody else wanted to do them. Um, you know, and it was in some ways a little disheartening because I would have liked to have promoted, but promoting meant um, going back to the street and it meant going back to night shift. And at that time, it it just didn't fit my life. And I had, I mean, detectives do have some cushy hours. We've got bankers hours, daytime, <laughs> you know, we've got yeah. our evenings off. However, your nights are, you know, you're susceptible to call out. You've got your call out weekends, whatever your case might be for your department. Um, but I found that saying yes to these things that nobody else wanted to do, those things were exactly what went on my resume later when I went to go work in the private sector. And so just saying yes to the stuff that seems inconsequential at the time um, became really important. And yeah, it led me to where I'm at today. Um, and I've got the, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about my transition from law enforcement to mm -hmm. the private sector. Um, again, it started with just saying yes. And uh, we had um, a TV show come through town and they needed people to work in uniform to block off streets. So it was an overtime shift. And of course, nobody wanted to do it because it was new and nobody knew what it was. 
And they were more comfortable with taking the overtime shifts they were familiar with. And so, of course, I always say yes. I said, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> and so I go to um, block off my street and uh, I'm in uniform. I'm in a par- marked patrol car. And most of you know, the, my career, the, the bulk of my career was in detective. So it was fun for me to get back into uniform mm-hmm. to do these overtime shifts. And I end up being approached by this guy and he looked official and he had a badge on that, uh, you know, like a, you know, one that hung around his neck. And he started kind of quizzing me up about who I was and, you know, what I, what my background was. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm just here to block the street. Like, don't you have something better to do? <laughs> yep. I can tell he was with the TV show. Um, and he just kept quizzing me up. And finally, at some point, um, I started telling him about an interaction that I'd had years ago because uh, he, he was asking me about what I wanted to do when I retire. And uh, with the department I was with, you could retire after 20 years. And I had had this kind of formative discussion with this guy um, several years prior to that. Um, I was um, at my parents for, I think, Fourth of July or something. We're at a cabin and there was a campfire and... Uh, anytime you're a cop or in law enforcement or security, if there's somebody else at any gathering that you're at, they always say, Hey, you should, you should know this person. You should meet this person. <laughs> of course. This I've barbecue. had that experience. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you don't already know them, you need to meet them. Exactly, so, uh, right. <laughs> so I get introduced to this guy and he's, you know, at the time I was in my thirties and this guy was, um, you know, probably in his sixties, gray hair. And here comes this, you know, you know, I'm sure he was just, you know, annoyed to have to be introduced to me and like, here, she's a police officer. And um, <laughs> you guys have a lot in common. Go ahead, discuss. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, well, that's about the only thing we have in common. Um, but just, you know, my inquisitive nature, I started asking this guy questions as we're sitting around the campfire. And he was, I think, pretty dismissive of me. And, but I don't think he ever, I, I, I think I still has, have his phone number somewhere because he actually did end up writing his name and number down for me. Like, ah, little lady, if you ever need help, here you go. <laughs> um, and what he told me was that he works for an organization that um, protects people who own football teams. And uh, before we started the show, we were joking about some sports recently. And I know zero about sports. And I we jokingly call him sports ball. If you know me, you know that I have no interest <laughs> in sports. So I was like, this would be perfect for me. Um, protecting people who, uh, and he said it was really hard to find women who were willing to protect women who own football teams. Mm, I was like, well, this is something I could do. And, you know, I wasn't going to be um, distracted by, you know, whatever football team it was or, you know, any of the glitz and glamour that goes with it just because it, you know, it fell on deaf ears with me. Um, but I didn't even know that was a job to protect yeah. people yeah. who own football teams. And, and this is what he did. And I couldn't even tell you the football team he worked for because it meant nothing to me. <laughs> it meant nothing to you. Um, yeah. But it planted a seed that there was life after law enforcement and that you could take these skills that you were getting um, and do something else with them. So uh, I I'd kind of kept that in my back pocket. And so then uh, fast forward a couple of years from that situation, um, I was helping with, we were doing, um, a sting, um, you know, child sexual abuse material sting, Mm -hmm. um, 
And we had a helicopter, so we weren't having to engage in um, pursuits. We'd have the helicopter. So if there was an incident and the person decided to run, we're not chasing them through town. We can just follow them in the helicopter. And so they, they put me that, you know, who are they going to put in the helicopter? They're going to put Katie who can talk to anyone. So <laughs> they put me in the helicopter <laughs> with these pilots for two days. And when I was during the conversation with one of the pilots as we're, you know, in between sting operations, I told him about this guy that I had met. And apparently there's these jobs where you can go protect women who own football teams. And I thought that was fascinating. And so he told me about a security firm and he said, well, have you ever heard of this company? And I was like, well, no. And he said, well, they hire people to do that exact thing. And so again, I put it in my back pocket and I was like, okay, here's another bit of information about something I could do. Um, And so I actually shot that company, um, my resume in 2014 and you know, I had a young child at home and a busy life and it wasn't real feasible, but it was a step. And I was thinking maybe this firm could connect me with a job to protect women uh, who own these football teams or something along those lines. Because what I found was that they were having a really hard time in the security industry, finding women who are willing to step away from their family, step away from their Mm -hmm. lives, go follow someone else in their life um, and I found that a lot of these ultra high net worth families were looking for women who blend in and, you know, versus the the big, tall, bald guy with the earpiece and the black suit. And they were looking for the soccer moms who could protect. Yeah. And and that was exactly what I was. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that sharing information is crucial. That's why we created the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. The center is a hub for the ongoing exchange of security strategies and best practices, insights on current and past trends, and sharing valuable information through expert discussion and analysis. It's made up of subject matter experts with decades of experience across a wide range of disciplines. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. So fast forward to this situation where I'm at this TV show, I'm blocking this road. There's this guy who's come up to me. He's asking me questions. And, you know, he asked me about what I want to do in retirement. So I tell him about the story about the guy um, and the football team and then tell him about the story about the guy in the helicopter. And he told me that I should, you know, the guy in the helicopter told me about the security firm. Well, this guy who'd been talking to me for now two days mm-hmm. at my patrol car, he kept showing up <laughs> on day two <laughs> of, uh, blocking the street. It was the most boring job you could have, but the <laughs> right. fascinating part was talking right. to this guy. And so it turns out he works for the security firm and at the time was actually doing the hiring for these types of positions. And it was just this serendipitous collision. And I said, well, I actually have heard of that security firm. I said, and in fact, I sent him a resume at one point and I don't think he believed me because they're this renowned boutique security firm. So I actually, you know, with the with modern technology, I was able to pull up on my phone and show that I sent this (laughs) email in 2014. 
Yeah. So six years later, this is in 2020. So six years later, I said, actually, here's my resume. I sent it to him in 2014. This guy's jaw dropped. He's like, well, you're exactly the type of person I'm looking for. When do you retire? (laughs) I've got some time. So anyway, um, I ended up doing some 1099 contract work for this security firm. And they realized that I was also kind of a techie nerdy type. And so above and beyond uh, looking at me for some of the executive protection, um, which is, you know, I learned kind of just the fancy word for bodyguard. Yep. Um, they started tapping me for some intelligence work and some investigative work and uh, COVID hit. And so this was all stuff that I could do from home. And so what I really wanted to do was the executive protection stuff because that was fun. There was travel. Mm -hmm. My child was older at this point. Now I could do this. Um, But with COVID, we couldn't go anywhere, do anything. And so that came to a screeching halt. However, people still needed investigations done. And so they would would shoot me some information and say, hey, could you deep dive this? And um, I was able to do these, these reports from home and... Uh, you know, I, I always said yes, <laughs> like I said, the answer is always yes. And so it got to the point where, you know, the world started to open back up and they started to offer me some executive protection type work again. And, and there's so much to learn. There's, I mean, from what I've heard, it's about two years of constant training before you really know what you're doing in executive protection. Yes. yes. Um, and so I was in the infancy of that journey when I actually ended up being assigned with um, the person who is now my boss. And so um, I do work for an executive office and I was, uh, that connection was made on one of these times where, I mean, I had to move heaven and earth to get the time off work to go do this executive protection, um, but it was worth it because of the connections that I made uh, and those relationships that I built. And, you know, that's, in the rest is history. So I did retire <laughs> from law enforcement after 21 years and am currently working in the private sector. Um, and one of the things, so in meeting with my current boss, um, you know, I, I'd always kept my resume up to date just because that's just how I operate. Um, but I realized that all those little things that, and I, I don't mean to make this about gender, but all those little things that maybe the men didn't want to do in my organization Mm -hmm. were the things that I could put on my resume and the things that made me uh, stand out from the male applicants. It's actually such an important point because these are things that you did in, instead of taking that promotion, right? Instead of the, I mean, you said you had taken the, the sergeant test and that's sort of the natural progression for so many in law enforcement is you keep moving up the ranks. You want to go up to a higher rank, you test for a higher rank. It's, assumed that promotion is always a good thing. And yet you said, look, I'm not doing the promotion angle. Instead, I'm going to, I'm taking on all these projects that no one else wants. But in doing so, you got to build a much broader base of experience and got to learn different tactics. I mean, just rewriting policy, people, you know, like, (laughs) like, oh, you're writing policy, but yet policy is so absolutely critical in sort of executive protection, in um, any sort of private security, understanding how to read a policy, understanding when a policy is not working. It may sound boring, but it is a really critical skill to have. And so the, all these different things you you got a chance to do and you did instead of, in lieu of that kind of 
promotion that that so many people would assume everyone would want it. Why wouldn't you want it? It feels like this was, it gave, gave you this incredible breadth of, of experience that you now can bring to bear in your current position. And had you not, it didn't sound necessarily intentional at the time, but you know, as, as you had shared with me earlier, you got a chance to do all this work no one else wanted to do. And in doing so really put you head and shoulders above others. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, it's, you know, I talked to uh, girlfriends who are in law enforcement and and even the men that I worked with and saying, well, you know, I was a cop for so long. How do those skills even translate into anything else? And, you know, oftentimes folks go work at the federal courthouse doing security or they go work for maybe a university. So doing law enforcement so their kids can go to college. Uh, and so it didn't really, you know, there was really, um, there's no great plan out there that says, once you retire from law enforcement, this is how these crazy things that you did translate well into the next position. Because so many people, you know, law enforcement offers you generally a pretty young retirement. And Mm -hmm. so I retired when I was 44 and that, and that was after 21 years. And so, you know, you want a second job. There's, I, I'm not going to, sit around for the next 20 years. I, you know, I wanted to do something. And I find that with my colleagues, it was the same thing. They just weren't sure how that translates. Uh, and so a lot of this was learning what, um, you know, what I did at the police department and how to translate that into private sector language. Um, and, you know, it's in the position that I'm in, I think it would take somebody with some sort of a law enforcement or military background to do the job that I'm doing. Um, and to, to lightly touch on that, it's overseeing background investigations, intel investigations, and risk and crisis. Uh, and those are all things that, you know, absolutely translate well from law enforcement. The other thing, too, and I remember one of the first conversations I had with the man who I now work for, um, he said that he really liked cops because they were completely unflappable. He said, mm. there is nothing I can say or do that's going to get you spun up. And I'm like, well, you know, short of, you know, a homicide, you know, or somebody's Mm -hmm. deceased, like, I feel like we can fix anything. And so, so much of my job has just been uh, as a a fixer um, and a problem solver. Um, And that's just a skill that I think so many law enforcement take for granted. Um, That's something that you do on a daily basis. And um, those skills that you learn and, you know, you whether or not you're a SWAT negotiator, every time you show up to a call, you're negotiating right, and you're having right. that conversation with somebody in crisis whose brain is disengaged from reality because what they're dealing with right then is the most important thing in their life. And this may be one of you know 20 different calls you're taking that day, um, but to be able to be present with that person, make them feel heard, gather the information that you need. Um, I mean, that takes a skill set that so few other um, careers out there require uh, that it translates so nicely into this world. The other piece I think that's important here, just as I'm hearing you describe it, and and I know that this is was true for me when I made a transition from law enforcement to the private sector, is that part of what you also need to be able to do is communicate effectively to those that you're now working with. Within law enforcement, there's a, you know, there's 
chain of command. There, there's it, its own language at times, and you need to know that skill. But once you move into the private sector, you have to be able to put in a way to communicate what you were doing and why you were doing it to uh, someone you're protecting or to a, a new organization that doesn't necessarily speak that language. And so to be able to just simply translate what it is that you were doing and why you were doing it and to be able to communicate clearly and, and oftentimes plainly is uh, is a really important skill and, and one that I think that making that transition, um, folks coming from law enforcement and from military don't often know how critical it is to be able to to put into plainer language what it is that they're doing and why. Right. Well, I'd <laughs> say another one of the learning curves was um, so much communication in law enforcement and military is very blunt, direct, to the point when you're mm-hmm. communicating with the people you work with. Um, and so really having to, to, <laughs> to work on those skills uh, in the private sector. So um, that is not the way to communicate effectively amongst <laughs> your peers. Uh, so, I mean, you can definitely pick out the, yep. the folks who work in security in these organizations um, because we do have just a different way of communicating. So that was probably one of the biggest learning curves for me is, um, you know, maybe putting a beginning, middle and end to my emails um, with, this, <laughs> with the greetings and uh, the pleasantries and the fluff. Um making sure that I wasn't coming across as too blunt, too crass, um, you know, keeping the the sailor talk to a minimum and uh, not being as much of a bull in a china shop. So, yeah. I mean, that was probably one of the, um, the, the other skills translated nicely. And I'd say that's been one of my, the biggest learning curves is just how, how to operate yeah. with that background in a corporate situation mm-hmm. and do it in a softer, kinder way. Yeah. It, and, and to avoid the acronyms. Acronyms are, are huge in law enforcement and military. And so when you can oh. uh, <laughs> get, actually yep. spell something out, it's helpful. Yeah. I literally had to uh, explain BOLO yesterday in a meeting. <sighs> yep. Yep. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, an IT person said, what does BOLO mean? I'm like, that's a fantastic yep. question. So yes, well, the yeah, acronyms. I, um, I had a chance uh, on is one of the episodes we do on women who protect. I, I got a chance to talk with a good friend of mine who is in HR and and now does a lot of work with security. And so she she serves as that translator piece often between security or law enforcement and and HR within her organization and, and others. Um, and she was telling a funny story about uh, hanging out for the first time with folks in security or law enforcement, sort of walking in in different areas, and and someone would say, "Hey, I've, I've got your six. and she'd be like, "Okay, I've I've got your five. Not knowing what "got your six means, I have your back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the position on the clock, and she's just wanted to get along and seem like she was a team player. She's like, "All right, I, I got your five. and they'd look at her like, "What?" <laughs> so that's fantastic. <laughs> so, um. One of the things that that I found in in making a transition from law enforcement to the private sector is that the the tools that I had available to me to work cases in law enforcement were not necessarily available to me in the same capacity in in the private sector. I'd love to hear your experiences as you've made this transition out to doing private sector security. Do you get access to the same information? Have you had to get, you know, more creative or scrappier? How do you how do you look at for information for the investigations and and the the work that you're doing now in the private sector? Yeah. So making that shift from law enforcement to private sector, I mean, that was um, 
I had been doing some of that work um, through that security firm that I mentioned earlier. And so I understood some of the limitations uh, in what I could get private versus government. Uh, and the biggest thing is, uh, you know, I, I don't have access to search warrants anymore. And so um, there would be bits of information that I would need. And, you know, I, I now have to form these relationships with law enforcement uh, to be able to take my investigations a step further. So it might be something where we're looking at a person of interest, a POI, and we can only get so much information before we do need to, um, you know, engage in that handshake with local law enforcement to take this over. Mm -hmm. And it's it's been a little bit frustrating, um, you know, because a lot of times we're going to be uh, limited by their capacity to take on a new investigation and whether they see it as a worthwhile situation. And um, I, being former law enforcement has absolutely helped with that transition because mm. I can call up sure. law enforcement and I have instant credibility. Uh, in fact, I there's a police department that I was trying to reach recently and in regard to a POI, you know, who is attempting approach to our principal. And uh, I couldn't get anybody on the phone. So I went down to the police department. I could not find a front door. I was trying all the doors <laughs> and it was in a really sketchy part of this city. And, um, I saw a couple officers and they were walking into a door and they were about half a block away. So I'm, you know, shuffling down the street, like, Hey, Hey, stop, stop. And I don't want to scare them. <laughs> there, <laughs> sure. you know, it's just another. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, uh, can, can I ask you a question? Just to, like get them to stop you know, because I was afraid that they were going to go inside, the door was going to shut behind them, and I was never going to get access to this police department. And so I led with, um, you know, because of, of course they square off with me. They don't know who I am. I'm just running at them, screaming like, ah, stop. <laughs> and uh, I said, hey, I'm sorry. I, um, for, Former law enforcement, retired law enforcement, I am just, uh, you know, looking for the front door here. <laughs> and they said, well, there is no front door <laughs> because we're locked down. And um, but just like I needed to lead with that law enforcement piece yep. to even get them to listen to me because otherwise they would have just brushed me off. But being able to say, hey, look, I'm retired law enforcement. I appreciate what you're doing here. Thank you for your service. Can we connect? You know, whatever it is, yep. however you throw it out there. Um, but it gave me instant credibility with these officers. And then they took me right in through the side door. They connected me with their supervisor. And had I just been a civilian and had not had that law enforcement background, there's no way they would have brought me in through that door. There's no way that they would have put me right in touch with their sergeant. Um, and so they do treat me differently um, because I'm law enforcement. Um, however, once I get in there, I need to make sure that the information that they're providing me is something that I can have legally. Mm. And so it's kind of that dance um, and saying, hey, this is the information I need. I'm no longer law enforcement. Yeah, I understand that there's going to be barriers here. Um, what can you share with me? You know, or where where can you at least point me for this information? Um, because maybe they can say, well, we've got some publicly available information. We've got a public blotter, and it might be beneficial to look here. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, it is crippling in a lot of ways. However, what I found in the private sector is all of a sudden there's money to pay for um, a lot of these programs. Um, you know, these kind of pay to play type situations, whether it's uh, your LexisNexis or your TLO or Ontic, mm -hmm. um, you you then pay for these things and you have access to it. Um, and so it's I mean, it's a matter of approaching the same problem from a different direction. 
And I would say just identifying those tools um, and going to these conferences and talking to other professionals so you, and learning what they're doing and how they're accessing this information. Well, and I, as I think also as as your own history has shown that you may make contacts along the way that become helpful years after you've actually made them. And so just the chance to to introduce yourself to people, whether it's in conferences or that backyard barbecue around the campfire, or whatever you had to do, that mm-hmm. that those those connections might prove to be useful years after you actually make them. And you don't have to necessarily keep in touch as pen pals the whole time, but um, but to just like th- that it sounds like your experience has been so many people that you've met along the way, including going back to that advisor in college who said, look for a backup plan. I'm not sure game warden is it. It have, have proved to be useful in getting you to the, the career that you have today. I'm, I'm, it's, it's been fascinating to, to listen to and, um, and, you know, and <laughs> this wonderful image I have of you of, of the, um, the sorority girl with, uh, you know, fluffy hair and pink and heels having had this fascinating career and, and, and you're really just only halfway through. So, um, Katie, I, I can't thank you enough for joining me on women who protect. It's been so fun and, and I hate that we have to stop and I would love to continue this conversation for, for hours on end, but, um, I just want to thank you. This has been a wonderful experience. Well, thanks for, uh, having me and letting me share this story. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Roll the Dice and was written by Mark Wallach. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo. Thanks for listening.